Today we begin a new conversation. And that conversation we simply have entitled Love Is. The reason that we're having this conversation now is because it's February. In February we have this holiday called Valentine's Day. And Valentine's Day is all about love. You see it, right? Valentine's Day is what day? Anybody there? What day? What day? Somebody said the 13th, 14th, we don't know what day. February 14th, I think is Valentine's Day, right? It's coming up. It's this week. Husbands in the room, you need to know this is your public service announcement. Valentine's Day is this week, okay? But here's the deal. Valentine's Day is all about love, and we talk about love, and there's hearts everywhere. And, and I will tell you this. I was thinking about it this week. You know, we're going to do this series, Love Is. And uh, for my wife and I, February is a very, very, very important month. Uh, it's a month that's all about love, right? I mean, it's a very important month for us because 30 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, I lived about two and a half hours away from her. I lived near Fort Wayne, Indiana, and she lived in the inner city of Chicago. And uh, we were dating, and uh, I worked a job that started at 8 o'clock at night. I unloaded trucks to 8.30 in the morning. And uh, one morning, I got off work, and I drove two and a half hours to see my wife. And she was at work, and I had arranged with her roommate that I was going to hop into her apartment. And I brought a suit and so that when she got home, uh, I was all gussied up. I was in a suit and a tie. I even had suspenders on. I had my shoes shine. I was looking good, right? And um, I, I went and bought some flowers, and I had those placed in a strategic place. And not only that, but I had a candle, right? I had placed a candle right in the middle of the table. I had some food, and I cooked some food. I don't know if that was that great, but I cooked some food. And, uh, and so I had some music playing so that when my wife came home from work, uh, she walked in. I don't know that it was really smart in the inner city of Chicago to surprise her by breaking into her house, right? But that's what I did. And when she got there, the music was playing, the candle was lit, and there I was. We're going to have this meal. It's like, oh, well, you surprised me. Yeah, we're going to have this, this time together. I, I've been looking forward to seeing you. And so we shared a meal together. And in the middle of that meal, 30 years ago this month, 30 years ago this month, I got up from that meal and I went over and I knelt down on one knee. And I pulled a box out of my pocket, and I opened the box, and I said, roses are red, violets are blue, I have this ring. Will you say I do? That's what I did, right? And, and 30 years ago to this month, I asked my wife to marry me, and she said yes. Aren't you glad about that? Yeah. Yeah. Some of you aren't that impressed. It's a month about love. Now, I was thinking about it this week because something happened this week, and I'm like, wow, that's kind of when love began. We got engaged. It was like awesome, right? And uh, I was thinking about how love evolves, right? Because 30 years later, 30 years later, are you with me? 30 years later, uh, I'm sitting with my wife in, in a doctor's office. And uh, I'm sitting there as the doctor's talking to me, and, and she was with me. And, uh, but the doctor, I was the patient, the doctor was talking to me and said, hey, um, you know, we need to schedule you an appointment. Uh, and uh, he happened to schedule. I said, okay, cool. He said, this month, and uh, we're going to schedule you an appointment. And he scheduled my doctor's appointment, my next doctor's appointment, for the day that we got engaged, the exact day, 30 years to the day. And I'm saying, great, what's the doctor's appointment we got to schedule? And I, he said, well, uh, she's going to need to go with you to this doctor's appointment. I'm like, wow, what's that about, you know? And uh, 30 years to the day, she's going to go with me to this doctor's appointment. I said, okay, what's going to happen? He said, well, now that you're 50, you're over 50, you need to have a colonoscopy is what he said. All right? Some of you are like, what's that, right? Nothing says love quite like a colonoscopy, right? And so she asked, I said, why does she have to come? He said, you're going to need a ride home is what he said, right? And so I'm going to look at her and say, roses are red, violets are blue. I need a ride home. How about with you, right? Or something like that. 
But love is something that our culture is obsessed with. Our culture is obsessed with it. We talk about it. We think about it. In fact, uh, it seems like we have put a lot of stock in this whole thing called love. You just need to look at a bumper sticker and realize that our culture thinks love is all you need. That somehow in our mind, we think if we just had more love, that's all we need. In fact, we even go beyond that and say love is the answer. We're not really sure what the questions that it's answering are, but we're pretty sure that whatever those questions are, love is the answer. And so we've created all kinds of unique ways online and other ways in order to find love, right? And some of you maybe even met this way. We have all kinds of things that when I was younger, we didn't have, right? But you literally can meet people online in order to find love. We have movies that are all about love, right? And some of you, maybe that's your favorite movie. I don't know. Uh, The Notebook and Titanic, all those movies that are all about love. In fact, you turn the radio on and it's all about love. We've sung songs over the decades that are all about love. See if you recognize any of these. You might age yourself a little bit. Whitney Houston, I will always love you. Some of you know that, right? Elvis Presley. Some of you are like, whoo, Elvis Presley, right? Can't help falling in love with you, right? Celine Dion, the power of love. Diana Ross, Lionel Richie, endless love. Captain and Tennille, love will keep us together. Some of you aged yourself, right? Foreigner, I want to know what love is, right? Our movies and our songs are all about love because somehow our movies and our songs are this collective cry inside our culture that says we want, need love because if love is all that I need and if love is the answer, then it's hard to understand why so often love is what's missing from our marriages. It's hard to understand sometimes why love is what's missing from our families. It's hard to understand sometimes why love is what is missing from our communities. And can we even say this? Can we just be real? Even from our churches sometimes? Like we live in a world that's really crowded yet more lonely than ever. We live at a time when there are more people population-wise on the face of the earth and yet relationships seem harder to come by and people have more online relationships than they have face-to-face relationships and we are hungry for love. We are obsessed with love. We want to get our arms around love. It makes me wonder if another singer whose name was Tina Turner might have been on to something. Then she wrote a song and she sang a song. Simply was this, what's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? And when you read the story of God, which is found in the Bible, listen close, when you read the story of God, which is found in the Bible, apparently love has a lot to do with it. Because you see, one day Jesus was cornered and when he was cornered, this guy said, hey Jesus, can you boil the Bible down? Can you tell me the most important thing that I ought to be paying attention to? And Jesus said, sure, I'll boil the Bible down. Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus literally looks at this guy and says, if you want to boil the Bible down, you want to boil all this thing down, it all boils down to love. Love God, love others. In fact, in fact, a little later on, Jesus is with his followers, and they're getting ready to kill him. Literally, he's going to die on a cross in a few hours. And so he's got his disciples, his followers, his team around him. He said, there's some things I want to make sure you understand. And so in this moment, right before he's going to go to the cross, he said, I want to boil down the Christian life for you. And when he boiled down the Christian life, he said, a new command I give you guys, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, followers, that you belong to me if you love one another. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say, by this, everybody's going to know that you're my follower if you go to church, if you are a really good person. He didn't say, if you know a lot about the Bible. He said, this is how they'll know you belong to me by your love for one another. In fact, same guy writes a little later in a book called 1 John. He said, I'll boil God down. I'll boil God down for you. He says, dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not, there's our word, love doesn't know God. Like if you don't love, this thing seems to be very important, this thing called love. If you don't love, then don't tell me you know God. Because why? Because God loves. That's not what it says. He says because God literally is love. And it seems like when you begin to read the passages that we just read, that love turns out to be the answer. When you read the passages we just read, it turns out love is maybe all we need if we really understood what love is. The problem is this in our culture. Can we just say it out loud? Love is confusing. And one of the reasons it's confusing is because it's the only word we have for it. We just say love for everything, right? I love my wife. I love my children. I love my grandson, right? Amen? I love ice cream. I love Penn State football. I love my favorite TV show. I love fill in the blank. And when you begin to unwrap this thing called love, you realize that our word love makes it confusing because we use the same word to express how we feel about all kinds of different things. And then to make matters worse, If you sat in my seat and I get to hear lots of people's stories, here's something I commonly hear, particularly when a relationship is having trouble. I hear somebody come in and say, I love him, I'm just not in love with him. And you begin like, what in the world is this thing called love? That's why that's why in the New Testament, New Testament is written in Greek, you can forget that, but they had four different primary words. There was more than four different primary words they used for love. And it kind of helps us. It helps us understand what in the world was God talking about when he said love seems to be at the center. Love seems to be what we need. Love seems to be a really, really important thing. And these four words are simply this. If you like this kind of stuff, you can write this down. The one word is called storge, and that is just a family kind of love. That's an affection and admiration That's the kind of love that says, hey, I love my family. I admire that person. There's a second kind of love, and you can almost guess what that refers to. It's eros. And it's where we get the word erotic because it's a sexual, romantic kind of love. And so when it talks about that kind of love, it uses this word. And then there's a third word, and we get our city, Philadelphia, kind of comes from this word, phileo. It is a brotherly love. It's it's a love that goes deeper than just mere friendship. It is a friendship that goes deep, almost brother to brother, phileo. But when the New Testament, here's where I need you to lean in. When the New Testament talks about love, it primarily uses a fourth word because it's a roll-up-your-sleeves word. It's a robust word. It's a powerful word. It is a word that paints a whole different cosmos of meaning for us, and it is the word agape. Because when the Bible talks about love, it talks about an agape love. You're saying, what kind of love is that? Here's what agape love means, and I would write this down somewhere. Agape love is a commitment that ascribes worth to someone else at the cost of one's own self. I'm going to say it again. 
Agape love is a commitment that ascribes worth to someone else at the cost of one's own self. That this kind of love that God talks about in the Bible is not simply a feeling, it's an act of the will, it's a decision, it's a robust, roll up your sleeves, put on your work pants kind of love that will ascribe worth to somebody else even if it costs me. Even if somehow it costs me, I'm gonna ascribe worth to that person. That's why you have your Bibles. Open to 1 Corinthians 13. Because 1 Corinthians 13, many of you have heard that. In fact, some of you got married and you had that read at your wedding. And yet the truth of the matter, 1 Corinthians 13 isn't in the Bible so that you could read it at your wedding. In fact, can I just give you a hint? Can I give you a hint? My hope is if we really are going to understand, stay with me, 1 Corinthians 13. For us to truly understand 1 Corinthians 13, it has to devastate us and crush us before we'll understand it. And so many of us like, I love 1 Corinthians 13. It sounds so poetic and flowery. Maybe haven't gone deep enough, dug underneath of what 1 Corinthians 13 is actually saying to us. Because 1 Corinthians 13 is a real life letter written by a real life person whose name is Paul. And he planted a church. And he loved this church in Corinth. And this church was active and organized and had lots of people. And yet, with all of its people, it had lots of problems. And so 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a church about its problems. You read it. Paul's writing to this church and he's talking to them about their problems. And at the center of all of their problems, at the very core of all of their problems, is the main problem. And the main problem is that somehow they haven't embraced, gotten their head around, and exhibited this thing called love. Which leads him to start in 1 Corinthians by saying this. I want you guys to know something, he says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. One of the problems in the church was that they put this high regard upon speaking. And so they had their favorite speaker, and who could do this, and who was that? And what Paul says is, I can be an incredible speaker, and yet if I don't have love, I'm a clanging gong. He says, I can be eloquent I, I can be in this incredibly gifted speaker, but without love, I'm just making noise. That's what he's saying. He goes on. He said, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. He, he's saying this, like if I'm the guy who knows the answers to the Bible that no one else knows, like if I'm the guy who can tell you and answer questions that no one else can answer, or if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. He says, if I have all this knowledge, even about the Bible, but I don't have love, I just have trivia in my head. And then he goes on. He said, if I give all I, have, all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. He said, I might be the most generous and devoted person in the room, but without love, I'm missing the point. If Paul were here today, stay with me. Here's what he would say. He would say, Dan... If you could speak like Billy Graham, and if you could sing like an angel, and when they're singing up front, your singing is almost out, off the charts, and you're raising your hands, and you're excited, and you don't have love, you're making noise. He's saying, damn, if you're in six Bible studies a week and you can chart out every answer to every question and every timeline in the Bible and you're the person everybody comes to when they want an answer out of the Bible and you don't have love, 
you just know trivia. He's saying, Dan, even if you're the most generous person, the most giving person, you're the guy who shows up at every event. You're the guy who goes on every mission trip. And if you're that guy and do not have love, it's empty. Paul says, Dan, you can be inspirational, motivational, and you can even be part of things that seem supernatural, but without love, you miss the point. Because love is the very thing that gives life meaning. It makes life meaningful. That's what love does. And without love, you can look good, be good, but you will be missing the point. Begs this question, then what what does this kind of love look like? And the rest of the chapter kind of folds that out. And for today, we're simply going to look at one verse. One verse today. Verse four. Will you guys read it out loud with me, nice and loud, like like a choir? Can we do that? Love is, love is, fascinating. All all the further we're going to go today, it's all the further we're going to go because that's all the time we have. He starts by saying agape love is patient, agape love is kind. What is he saying? I want you to write it down this way. It's the way I have it written in my Bible. I've had it written in my Bible this way for years. Love, true agape love, true love that God is talking about involves give and take. Agape love will take things from others and will give itself away for others. Agape love will take things from others and will give itself away for others. And so he starts by saying this. He starts by saying, love is patient. Anybody in the room glad he starts with that one? Like I'm thinking of all the ones to start with, right? Like start with one that I struggle with, but he says love is patient. And he starts with this one on purpose because this one is so important that there's a depth to what he's saying here that if we don't dig in, we might not understand the power of what he's saying. In order for you to understand the power of what he's saying, I've got to teach you some Greek. Can we do that? Shake your head. It helps me. Just shake your head. Can we, can we do that? I don't want to make you a Greek student, but you've got, you, you got to do this with me. The New Testament, the part of this Bible we're reading from was written in Greek. And this is so powerful, and sometimes when it's powerful enough, I want you to see it. He says, love is patient. In Greek, here's what patient sounds like. Macro thumeo. Let me say it again. It's two words put together, macro thumeo. Now, I want you to say it with me. You ready? One, two, three. Macro thumeo. That wasn't too bad. Let's try it again. Macro. Okay, I'm trying to be patient here. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, two, three. Macro thumeo. You're saying, Dan, why are you making a big deal of that? Because I want you to hear this. Here's what the word means. It's two words put together. The word macro means long. It means long, extended. That's what it means. The word thumeo means tempered. It's where we get the word temperature. Here's all Paul is saying is that love that is patient is a love that takes, listen close, worth writing down, takes a long time to reach its boiling point. That's what he's saying. In fact, I want you to write it this way. Love that is patient takes a lot without boiling over. That's love that is patient. Love that is patient takes a lot without boiling over. Love that is patient, when the heat is turned on in its life, that kind of love will not melt down. That's what he's saying. That kind of love doesn't lose its composure, doesn't seek to repay for its offenses. That kind of love is patient. It is macro thumeo. 
Love is patient. Everybody look here a second. Being patient, everybody look here, is a piece of cake. Being patient is easy if it weren't for other people. Can I get an amen? Come on. You can't say amen, say ouch, right? That's the truth. You see, patience is easy if it weren't for everybody else. I am the most patient driver you will ever meet when I'm on the road by myself. But the minute, you've never struggled with this, I know, the minute you're running behind and you get, yeah, you're, boom, a bunch of elbows going around, I can see you, all right? The minute you're running behind and you're late for work and the minute you get behind that guy, you know who that guy is? You might be that guy, I don't know. That guy who just has to go the speed limit, right? Oh, horrible, somebody says. He's obeying the law. And when he comes to a yellow light, he sees a yellow light way different than you. Can I get an amen? He sees slow down and stop. You say, hurry up and get out the way, right? I'm the most patient driver there is when I'm the only one on the road. It's when somebody else is there with me. I'm the most patient guy in Circle K when I'm in there buying gas, right, getting gas when I'm by myself. But the minute I'm in there, I'm running late, and all of a sudden I'm in line behind the guy, and you might be that guy. I recognize you if you're that guy who wants to buy three hot dogs, two donuts, a coffee, a Coke, and look the lottery tickets over. (laughs) Patience is a different thing. You can test me on this. I'm the most patient husband you'll ever meet. Guaranteed. Ask my wife. I'm patient. When she does what I want, how I want, when I want, because I want. See what I'm saying? Patient. See, I'm patient when people like me and, are, and they do everything like me and they like who I am and they feel lucky to have me as their friend. I'm patient, right? I'm patient dad when my kids are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, how I told them to do it. Right? I'm a patient coworker when everybody else is minding their own business, doing their work, and I can do my work. I'm a patient with my boss when he's nice to me and gives me a raise when I ask for a raise. I'm patient. Patience is easy if it weren't for other people. Why do I tell you that? Because here's the deal. We misunderstand patience. In the New Testament, macro thumeo, when that word is used, it is used primarily to talk not about being patient in circumstances, but to be patient with people. Interesting. You see, here's what I know. As long as there are people, there is an opportunity to be patient. Because no one will, will turn up the heat in my life quite like people. And that's when composure gets lost. And that's when I begin to boil. I know you guys don't struggle with this, but people can cause us to struggle with being patient. People who let you down. People who overpromise and they underdeliver, people who hurt you, people who can't keep their word, people who disappoint you, people who are annoying. Don't look at them. <laughs> people who are immature. People who are just weird because they I don't know, they're just different than me. People who, who always show up at inconvenient times. And Paul says, love is patient. It takes a lot without boiling over. Look here a second before we go on. Can you imagine that kind of love showing up and how our world would look different with that kind of love? Can you imagine? I mean, our world is full of people boiling over everywhere, right? Can we just say that? 
Can you imagine what this kind of love looks like? Oh, it's easy to think about how it looks in the world. Can you imagine what our community would look like if we loved each other this way? This week, no lie, this week, this week, I was the personal witness to two extreme cases of road rage just this week. Yeah, Monday morning, I went to the hospital to visit somebody. I'm coming back from that hospital, 6 in the morning. I'm like, man, I'm minding my own business, driving in the slow lane, you know, doing the thing. And all of a sudden behind me, I see headlights, just going crazy. I'm like, what's going on? Somebody, and then another set of headlights, and man, I'm like, I'm like, oh man, you know, what's happening? And all of a sudden, one got in front of the other, they pulled over the side of the road, and they boiled over. They boiled over. That's easy to think about how it might change our community. You ever think how it might change? Ready? Ready? Lean in. Your marriage? Now we're meddling, right? Everything, how it might change your marriage to have a love that takes a lot to reach its boiling point. I don't know how much more I can take. I was just with a husband yesterday. I don't know how much more I can take. I looked at him. I'm like, eh, are you coming tomorrow? I said, <laughs> imagine how that changed your relationship with your kids. Paul said his love is patient, but it doesn't stop there. Look what he says. He says, love is patient. And then look what he says. He says, love is kind. It's an interesting Greek word there. I'm not going to teach it to you, but, but here's what it means. It literally means to serve someone else by being useful to them, being able to look outside of myself to see their needs and to serve their needs. Love that is kind walks into a room and it thinks, not first, what does everybody think of me? Teenagers, everybody listen up because we all struggle with this. It doesn't walk into a room and its first thought is, what does everybody think of me? And what can I get from the people in the room? But it walks into the room because love is kind. It says, what do the people in this room need from me? That's a paradigm change. I, I would say it this way. That kind of love is a love that gives itself away. But it doesn't stop there. Without being repaid or recognized. It's a love that is willing to give because it recognizes a need, not because it needs to be recognized. I'm going to say that again. That's worth writing down. Love that is kind is a love that's willing to give because it recognizes a need, not because it needs to be recognized. You're saying, what does that kind of love look like? Well, Jesus one time was asked, what does it look like to love my neighbor? And we talked about this a few months ago. If you were here, he told a story. I love that about Jesus. And the story he told was about a man who was on this road, and he got beaten up and robbed, and he was left in the ditch naked. He needed help. Luke 10, you can check me on this, and he's needing help, and he's vulnerable, and he's exposed, and two church guys walk by. One's a priest, and one's a Levite, and if you know the story, Jesus said the two church guys, the priest and the Levite, see the guy in need, see the guy who needs help, and they walked on the other side of the road, and then a third guy came, a third guy who normally wouldn't have anything to do with a guy who was a Jew, wouldn't have associated with that guy, came, and here's what it says, he saw him. And he had compassion on him. And he went over to him. And he saw the need. And he said, how can I help with this need? And at great expense to himself, he met the man's need. He helped the man. Jesus said, that's what kindness looks like. Kindness is love in action. Kindness is serving the needs of others. Listen, without expecting anything in return. Let's just get real for a second. You're saying, Dan, why are you talking about this? Let's just get real. Let's just be real. Because if we're honest, 
it's better to be honest. If we're honest, our kindness can be cunning sometimes. And our serving can be really, really selfish. And we can be the first to help, but sometimes our help has a hidden agenda. And see, what God is saying here is that love that is kind is a love that sees a need and serves a need. Sees somebody who needs help and helps without expecting to be repaid. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. Without needing to be recognized, if I do that, certainly they're going to announce it. Certainly they're going to recognize it. Certainly they're going to publicize it. Certainly somebody's going to say something about it. He said, that is a love that is kind. You ever been somewhere where... People were just flat out kind, just like kind all the time. I have. Chick-fil-A. Anybody been there? I mean, you know, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but you go to Chick-fil-A, it's like they kind of got a corner on kindness, right? I mean, they're just kind. In fact, I'm so fascinated with them that this last week we had all staff meeting and Pastor Adam led us in, in all staff. And... Uh, he invited in the HR manager of Chick-fil-A to come and talk to us about kindness. It was fascinating. Uh, our staff loved it, loved it. Uh, this guy was incredible, and he talked about uh, kindness at Chick-fil-A. We all thought, man, do you just hire, like, really kind people? Is that how it works? And he's like, no, you know, we talk to them about training them. And like, well, how do you train them? And, you know, what do you talk to them about? He's like, well, eye contact and certain things you say when people walk into Chick-fil-A. It's like, how may I serve you or how may I help you? If you say thank you, they never say you're welcome. Did you notice that? They never say you're welcome. They always say it's my pleasure to serve you, Right? And so I'm thinking to myself, as this guy's talking, I'm like, wow, they teach all these kindness techniques, and yet this guy ended. He said, but that's not the secret of kindness. He said, the secret of kindness as we train our employees to be kind isn't necessarily the technique, although we want them to do that, but he said the secret to kindness, and he showed us this video, and you can YouTube it, not now preferably, but you can YouTube it, right? <laughs> and you just look up Chick-fil-A, and everyone has a story. He said the secret to kindness is to realize that everybody that walks in those doors, if you, could, if you could envision this imaginary bubble over their head, everyone has a story. And he showed this video, and he showed this guy walking in, and over his head was this invisible bubble that said, I just got fired yesterday. I'm not sure how we're going to make ends meet. A little girl running around. My mommy died giving birth to me, and my daddy resents me for it. A retired couple we are navigating the disappointment of never being able to have children in our life. And he said, when you begin to understand the story in others, it somehow drives you to want to give away for the sake of someone else outside of you. And as I was listening to him describe this, I began thinking about what we were talking about this way and began thinking about God says, boil the Bible down, love God, love others. Boil the Christian life down, love each other. Boil it all down to love. And you begin to think, what does that kind of love look like? And he starts by saying, love is patient. It will take a lot without boiling over. And love is kind. It will give itself away without seeking to be repaid or recognized. Everybody look here a second. And then I realized something. That 1 Corinthians 13 was not written so we could read it at weddings. If you read it at yours, it's fine. It's great. 
that 1 Corinthians 13 is not this feel-good chapter that somehow Paul put in there so that we can say, wow, that was really poetic. In fact, if you read it that way, you're misreading it. The 1 Corinthians 13 is Paul saying, I want to take you on this steep journey up this mountain called love. In this steep journey up this mountain called love, we simply are in the lower altitudes. And to truly understand 1 Corinthians 13, to truly understand the power of it, is to understand that 1 Corinthians 13 confronts us, exposes us, and reveals us. And before it will ever save me, it has to smash me. That if I read 1 Corinthians 13 and I simply read it and think, oh, wow, this is what I'm supposed to do, and I read it like a moral checklist, and I've heard it preached this way so many times, and you will not hear it preached that way here. If I simply read it as a moral checklist, I'm like, all right, I'm going to follow Christ, and I'm going to love more patient and more kinder. And to read this as like a, a, a to-do list or, or duties that I perform or this moral checklist is to misread it. Because if I read it that way, I'll go out and try to accomplish it and it will breed in me an arrogance. And this passage will never make sense to any of us in this room until it smashes us and humbles us. And when it does that, I realize that I'm the one in need of that kind of love desperately and that's the story of the bible that there is a god who loves us that way and then all of a sudden i begin to realize where that kind of love comes from and i realize that this kind of love is a love that i receive and simply as a response because i've received this kind of love from god See, the story of the Bible is simply this, is that I need loved patiently, I need loved kindly, and that's exactly how God loves me, and that's exactly how God loves you. And only when you begin to realize that, only when this passage breaks us down to that level will we realize that, will we really truly understand the power of this passage, and only when we understand the power of this passage will we have any power to somehow export this kind of love to our wives, to our children, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers, to whoever it is. See, the Bible says that God loves me patiently. Second Peter, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting any of you to perish, but wanting all of you to come to repentance. And when I begin to realize the patient love of God for me, I realize that the only way for me to have a relationship with God is because Jesus suffered long for me. When I realize that the only way for me to have a relationship with God is because Jesus chose not to boil over on account of what I've done, but he chose to bear the consequences of what I've done. I need to say that again, just came to me. Jesus didn't boil over because of what I've done. Most so powerful. Jesus didn't boil over because of what I've done. Instead, he decided to bear the consequences of what I've done. That's what 1 Peter says. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He didn't retaliate when he was insulted. Jesus didn't threaten revenge when he suffered. What's the secret to that kind of patience? He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. 
by his wounds we are healed. We have a patient God. We have a patient God that instead of boiling over, he instead took it upon himself and bore our sin. But he's not just patient, he's kind. Ephesians 2 says this, he's rich in mercy, loved us. Even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved for he raised us from the dead along with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Look at this. So God can point to us in all the future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. We have a God who loves us patiently and kindly. He literally gave himself away for our benefit. He's saying, Dan, why in the world are you talking about that? I thought we were supposed to be patient and kind. I will tell you, the only way you can be patient and kind, listen close, the only way you can be patient and kind, the way Paul's talking about, is to understand and receive and experience this kind of kindness and this kind of patience from God. The only way 1 Corinthians 13 will begin to become a powerful reality in my life is to realize that first and foremost, I need to receive that kind of love from God. And to the extent that I receive it and experience it, that is the extent to which I can extend it to others. And we'll say that again. The extent to which I receive it, understand it, and experience it is the extent to which I can extend it to others. He's saying, Dan, help me understand that. I'd be happy to. Some of you in the room, some of you in the room have never said yes to God's love for you. In fact, you didn't even know God loved you. Maybe this is your first time in church. Maybe you grew up in a church and you just thought God was angry at you. And God says, I want you to know that I am a God who loves you patiently. I didn't boil over on you. Instead, I took it for you. And gave myself away so that I could express kindness upon kindness to you. And his invitation to you is to accept his kindness. For some of you, you've never said yes to Jesus. And his invitation to you this morning is simply say, yes, God. Yes, I didn't know you loved me like that. Yes, I want to accept this free gift. I want to accept your grace. I want to accept this love, this patient, this love, this kind that's found in Jesus. I want Jesus to be the one who can save me and lead me the rest of my life. Truth is, some of you in the room, you've said yes to Jesus, and I know this to be a fact because I, I talk to a lot of people, and you have people in your life that are hard to live with. Don't look at them. You might be married to them. I know that to be a fact. And you might be sitting there and you're a follower of Christ and you're saying to yourself, I don't know how much more I can take. I don't know how much more I can give. I just had this conversation yesterday. Some of you, it may be a roommate. For some of you, you may be maybe a student. And, and, and you feel like you continue to be the brunt of and take, and you're like, I don't know how much more I can take. I don't know if I can keep giving. And I talked to a guy yesterday in this situation. And he's, and he's married, and he's like, I don't know if I can take it anymore. And he says, tell me what to do, Dan. Tell me what to do. And I said, stop focusing. 
Stop focusing on how you're going to love her better. That sounds weird. Instead, stay with me. Instead, start focusing on how much you've been loved by God. And if you'll grow in that understanding, you'll love her better. Because the more you understand how much you've been loved by God, the more ready you'll be to distribute the love that you've received. See, I'm going to talk to some of you who grew up in church right now. We got spiritual maturity messed up. Because somehow we thought it's about being saved and saying yes to Jesus. And now I work really hard to know to do the right things and work really hard to be. That's not spiritual maturity. Paul said, I can go through all the discipleship courses. I can know a lot about the Bible. And if I don't have love, that's what he said. Spiritual maturity is about me growing up and understanding how much I'm loved. When I was three, my dad was patient with me and kind. Everybody look here. My dad was patient with me and kind. But if you came to me as a three-year-old and said, is your dad patient and kind? I'd have been like, yes. If you'd have asked me as a 13-year-old, I'd have been like, I suppose, sometimes. If you asked me as a 21-year-old, I'd say, yeah, my dad was pretty patient, pretty kind. If you asked me as a 52-year-old father of three, grandfather of one, if my father was patient and kind, I would tell you that he was the most patient man that I have ever met and kinder beyond my wildest imagination. What happened? Did he become more patient at 52 than he was when I was three? No. You know what happened? I keep maturing. And I'm like, wow, I didn't realize how patient and kind my dad was. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. That's what it means to grow up in Jesus. You see, I realize that God loves me and he's patient and kind, but the more I grow up in Jesus, the more I understand, oh, I thought I knew he loved me, but now I know it different. I know it bigger. I know it wider. And why do I tell you that? Because the only power, the only power for you to love the people in your life that are hard to love, the only power isn't to go and say, I'm going to try harder. The only power is for you to get underneath of that understanding and let God expand your understanding of how much he loves you. And when he begins to do that, whoever that person is, wife, kid, person you go to school with, that person simply becomes somebody that you have the opportunity to distribute what it is that you've received. So God, across this room, we, we, we desperately want to love that way. We desperately want to love that way. And we believe the only way for us to love that way is to understand how much we're loved by you. And then to extend that love to others. And so for some of us in this room, we need to receive that love for the first time. And so in the quietness of this moment, before I pray and dismiss us, Every head bowed, if your eyes are closed, you make that decision, but I want you to get in a space for you're by yourself in your thoughts. You might be here and you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never said, Jesus, I want you and need you to be my Savior. I want to accept this love offering, this gift you've given me. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. You took my place. And I want to follow you the rest of my life. 
I want to say yes to Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And you can simply there in your seat have that conversation with God. And if that's the conversation that you have had with God this morning, somehow I want to hear from you. It's the most incredible decision you're ever going to make in your life. There's some of you in the room, though, you've said yes to Jesus, and yet, the truth be told, you know a lot about the Bible, you're very involved, you're very good person, and yet somehow love is missing, and there's somebody in your life right now that is hard to love, and you're taking a lot, and you don't know how much more you can take, and you're giving a lot, and there's no recognition, and nothing is coming back your way, and you're not sure how you can take anymore or how you can give anymore, and his invitation to you this morning is, I want to drive you deeper into an understanding of how incredibly much I love you. Because when that begins to fill your life, then it can begin to somehow pour from your life. So God, I pray that this chapter would confront us, expose us, and then it would call us to a dangerous kind of love because you loved us in a radical way that we don't totally have our brains around this morning. But God, would you expand our understanding of your love so that we can be conduits of that love to others? So God, I pray that you'd use this journey in our life to mature us so that we might know you better and know your love for us more. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.